hey, if I'm going to run a contribution margin positive brand from day one, the brand had better be worth a consumer saying to themselves, I am going to pay a premium above what I'll get at a grocery store because I believe in this brand. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Schwang Estershan. In the past decade, sparkling water went from a trendy beverage to a household staple. But have you ever noticed that it basically comes in the same flavors? Enter Sanzo. This brand specializes in Asian-inspired flavors that you don't typically see in sparkling water, like yuzu, lychee, and Asian pear. Sandro Rocco launched the company in 2019 and initially faced countless rejections from investors. Today, Sanzo can be found in your local Whole Foods and Target, and the company has raised over $10 million in funding. Sandro is here to tell us how he built Sanzo from scratch and took on the beverage giants. Thank you so much for being here, Sandro. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think Sanzo by Sandro is so fun to say. So you got to tell us the story behind uh, coming up with the brand. Yeah. Well, one lesson I think any entrepreneur who's trying to create a brand will quickly learn is that it's actually not super easy to get a name trademarked, or at least like you have to be very judicious about the brand name you pick, because if it's already trademarked, then you really can't or shouldn't use it because eventually it'll it'll come back to bite you in the way of a lawsuit, a cease and desist, something like that. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that have to kind of go the right way for a brand. And one of them I actually do think is the brand name. Is it easy to say? Is it something people like to say? Does it match the product that you're selling? I mean, all these different little cues that just get folks to buy into what you're doing. And so when I started the brand, um, I actually had like a good maybe like half a dozen to a dozen other names that I was workshopping. And unfortunately, a lot of those were already trademarked or just for whatever reason didn't feel exactly right. And so I went through an exercise of writing down all the letters of my first, middle, and last name, and it's Alessandro Lorenzo Rocco. And one of the combinations ended up being Sanzo. And I was like, okay, this could be interesting. And when I went through the USPTO website, like they're in charge of at the government level, like all the patents and trademarks, you do little like keyword searches and it wasn't coming up anywhere. Like it seemed like super clean. And so I ended up filing all of my own, um, you know, legal paperwork and pretty quickly actually got approved. And so got pretty fortunate there. And I think in many ways, um, you know, biased, but like I have now really grown to enjoy the name, almost like naming a child. Definitely. And I think it's a reflection of parts of your identity, the fact that it is elevating Asian flavors. So talk to us a little bit about why it was so important to start a brand around pieces of your identity that was not seen in the typical grocery store or market. I think I'm only even now starting to realize perhaps the broader importance of doing so. Why I say that is that in many ways, Sanzo itself is very much a a manifestation of my own personal journey as an Asian American. I think I'm growing to learn just how much other Asian Americans and even folks outside of our community are growing to really like resonate with that messaging. But for me, it was really a personal journey of my own. The original idea came to mind 
around you know mid 2018 or so. It's about five years ago, which is even crazy to think about that it's been that long. Um, I feel like I lived a lifetime in that period of time. But at the time, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, like that was really the big kind of like watershed event for the community. And for folks who don't know, you know, that movie ended up becoming the number one film at the box office over that summer and is also the sixth highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. Um, I can't remember which, but it's either one behind or one after uh, There's Something About Mary, which is like kind of crazy when you think about, you know, broader pop cultural implications. You know, that was a big watershed moment. That year, also BTS was touring around and like literally selling out stadiums, not just even small indie arenas, but like literally stadiums across America. Um, and then I'll even say just for my own like personal self, like that's a time that I was really starting to like ask myself and kind of dig a little bit deeper into my own Asian American identity. And, you know, I was 30 at the time, but between like David Chang, Momofuku, like there were things that were starting to catalyze, but I think it was really that year that for me, I was starting to get really opened up to this idea that like, oh my gosh, like this is really you know, crossed over into the mainstream. And oh, are there ways that maybe I or my own personal journey can contribute to this conversation in any way, shape or form? I guess another phenomenon that was going on for myself on a personal level was I was working at a technology company where our offices were just stocked with LaCroix. And it was very much the summer of sparkling water. Uh, you know, previously it had been Diet Coke and, you know, kind of like other beverages. And I was just seeing that like, you know, like basically seeing one for one this shift in consumer behavior. And, you know, LaCroix was one of the brands that was being put in our fridges, but it was a bunch of other sparkling water brands as well. And while that was cool, it was all the same lemon, lime, and grapefruit and maybe mixed berry flavors. And I just felt like there's got to be something more here, you know, with flavors that I grew up with and just feel like not really had their, you know, place in the limelight. And so, you know, coupling together a lot of these different I guess I'll just say observations that were going on in my own personal life. I started asking myself like, well, yeah, hey, is there room on grocery shelves um, you know, for flavors like this that represent these underlying subcultures? And, you know, after a couple of months of like deep exploration and just kind of toying around and learning about how to commercialize like that is beverage, get from an idea from a kitchen in your apartment to a grocery shelf. Like after several months, it was just like, hmm, okay. I became fascinated with that idea. So that's kind of what led me down this path. So you noticed that it was the summer of sparkling water, but you actually didn't have any food or beverage experience before tech. You were working at a nuclear power plant. So how did you then take the skills you had from different jobs and try to apply it into Sanzo and try to enter into this beverage industry? To be honest, that's at least for me, quite a bit accidental. You know, I'm not sure that I've ever advised anyone on a career path that takes them from nuclear engineering to investment banking to tech. Um, and I think if you asked me back in 2017 and early 2018, I completely honestly like don't know that I could have told you any way, shape, or form in which those first three careers would have really come together in any meaningful way. I felt like each of my previous two stops before starting Sanzo 
were getting away from my traditional engineering background. I don't know that it was ever really planned, but it did definitely help having all three of those experiences and specifically the nuclear engineer experience. It didn't necessarily help me understand manufacturing, but it, I think, gave me the ability to ask perhaps a bit more informed questions to manufacturers. You know, when I would visit manufacturing facilities, they were a little bit closer to what I dealt with in nuclear engineering. And so I could ask certain more questions or even just be able to get buy-in from the people who work these facilities that, okay, I wasn't just someone coming off the street. And so that I think was super helpful. Definitely my experience in investment banking. I don't think I needed that much of it, but it definitely helped me understand the basics around profit and loss statement, a balance sheet, things like that. And then I think the for sure the biggest contributor was my time working in, in the technology space, which was really my first dip into entrepreneurship. I didn't start the company that I worked at, but um, you know, I was employee number seven, sat literally right next to my CEO for five years and really got to see how that founding team um, you know, built and scaled the business. And like even more importantly than just the, I'll say the mechanics of growing a venture-backed business, it also really showed me that you can have good values while scaling. The business unfortunately didn't work out, um, you know, but they had a ten-year run. Eventually, got to becoming a twenty to thirty million dollar business that not a lot of people get to say. And yet, for me, the biggest takeaway that I had was, hey, these are founders that stayed humble fantastic business operators, great mentors to me. And it kind of showed me that, you know, in an age where there's been a lot of now, you know, Netflix and Apple TV and Hulu specials on, you know, some of the bigger crashes of the 2010s. Hey, there's actually a real world where you can create good business models and be good, you know, business leaders to teams that you bring on. You know, I think from just like an overall operator perspective, and it just showed me the type of entrepreneur that I wanted to be, should I get the opportunity you know, and, and, and the fortune to, to have that seat. What I also loved about you trying to enter into the beverage industry was how you approach gaining knowledge from different specialty stores where you actually traded your skill set for their knowledge. So tell us how you went about doing that. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning days, and I think still a pretty important lesson that I've learned and you know, now being an operator in the beverage industry for you know, three and a half to four years, one of the early lessons that I learned was that beverage is a very capital intensive business. Even if you have some bit of success early on, it's very likely that unless you come from generational wealth, like literally that level of of wealth, it's quite hard to scale a business on your own. You oftentimes really have to, if you have some bit of success, you really have to go and raise capital. And so in the earliest days, you know, I really didn't have that. And especially learning the business early on, um, didn't really have the luxury of being able to make mistakes with money. And so how can I trade my time for monetary value in ways that help build the business and also, you know, in many ways, like try to de-risk certain key decisions that could easily have put me under right then and there. And so 
you know, what I felt like I could offer, you know, working for that um, you know, technology business for several years, I was, I think, fortunate to be in kind of like a head of marketing, head of growth seat at a time when Facebook lookalike audiences were getting big, at a time when email marketing, even podcast advertising to a certain degree, um, you know, we were starting to make investments there and just generally learning how brands are built digitally native. Um, that was something that was, I think, very familiar for folks who were selling on platforms like Shopify, but still in the food and beverage industry, our industry is still one that's heavily reliant on B2B, you know, through distribution, selling in grocery stores. But you were seeing that those worlds mesh. And so what I had to offer in that world was folks who were getting to learn how you could build a community online. Because for the most part, the way folks built CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies, folks that sell in grocery stores was through sampling, field marketing, you know, like just like really more IRL experiences that while good are also very expensive and take a lot of time to scale. And so being able to kind of trade that knowledge, you know, I would basically teach them about setting up their Facebook ads manager campaign, and they would give me a contact for a distributor or a manufacturing partner. It felt like a pretty fair trade. And I was able to kind of ladder up my own knowledge and operator chops that way. Definitely very resourceful. And also you were able to kind of build out a network of distributors and production partners, which then allowed you to run a small test run of some of the initial flavors. So tell us about how you approach those initial production runs and developing the early days of the flavors. It's so funny because because now that I know so much more about the industry and how people do consumer and category insights, um, you know, for folks out there who may be a little less versed in the world of consumer packaged goods, there is in the world of grocery actually a very robust data infrastructure for what's selling in consumer. And you can buy these insights through folks like Nielsen, IRI, Spins in the natural world, where you can actually see, hey, at Whole Foods, at Sprouts, at you know Safeway Albertsons, at Kroger, what are the brands that are selling well and what are the flavors that are selling very well? I actually very much feel like if I had approached this industry with already that level of knowledge, I probably would not have launched Sanzo in the way that we did, but I also feel like that in many ways was the secret sauce of the Sanzo launch. And what do I mean by that? Our initial flavor set was lychee, calamansi, which is a Filipino citrus fruit, and Alfonso mango. And those flavors, if you looked at industry trends, you know, circa four or five years ago when I was starting the brand, these were more emerging to maybe even like frontier. Find some folks might just say straight up super niche, um, you, know, you know, flavor trends that really weren't ready for the spotlight yet. And I think it, it's it kind of goes to show the kind of power of entrepreneurship and why I think in many ways we have the ability to disrupt incumbency because if folks were already heavy operators in the CPG industry, I probably wouldn't have launched that way. But because we did, you know, it allowed us to kind of establish maybe a bit of like a first mover advantage. But for me, that was also the secret of the brand was that I really wanted folks to discover perhaps flavors that weren't yet, you know, represented on grocery shelves. In many ways, 
why industry trends can be misleading is that they are inherently backward looking. Um, they don't necessarily look into the future. And while a lot of folks attempt to predict the future, it's really, I think, actually the entrepreneurs and the creators and the way that brands are created and cultivated that really influence future trends. And so, you know, for me, that was very much, you know, I, I guess in hindsight, I think one of the interesting things about the beginning of Sanzo is that calamansi, lychee, and mango like likely would not have been in our flavors if I came from deep within the industry. From my perspective, especially being a Filipino-American, the calamansi was very deeply personal to me, but the other flavors as well were important to me t- for folks who within the Asian-American community could find a source of home that they maybe had not seen on their grocery shelves, but for folks who were not in our community to find a source of discovery and excitement around our culture. And I think the other side of production is the fundraising part or the financial part, which is something you were also very resourceful with, um, where you've kind of funded your production runs with your savings and your full-time job. So tell us a little bit about the early days of bootstrapping. What I often tell a lot of uh, prospective food and beverage entrepreneurs is to the extent that you can stay in your day job while you incubate the brand. Um, And there are a lot of tactical reasons for this. First of which is, yeah, it is a very capital intensive business. And even more now in a higher interest rate environment, the cost of capital is quite high and the access to capital is decreasing pretty dramatically. And gosh, especially with the actual collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, there is just a lot more sensitivity towards, I would say, just generally higher risk endeavors out in the world. And so to the extent that you can fund your business in the beginning, or at least your R&D days through your own personal savings and while keeping a day job, I think that's... That's something that I highly recommend. But there's also very practical reasons for it as well. I'll get a lot of folks that come to me or they get introduced to me in their earliest days. It's basically like they just have an idea. Maybe they've even mocked up uh, you know, how a package will look like, whether it's a food product or a beverage product. And the the very first thing that a lot of these folks will learn is that the actual product formulation and getting to market takes a pretty significant period of time. You know, you will send out a kind of scope of work to a formulator about, hey, I want it to taste like this. I want it to use these ingredients. I want it to have a maximum of this amount of calories or this amount of sugar or or whatnot. I, I want to use erythritol or stevia or monk fruit, or I don't want to use that. And that process can actually take several months. And in the meantime, literally what you're doing is you're typing in an email maybe once every week or every couple of weeks. You're waiting for samples to come by. You're tasting it with yourself, your co-founder, your friends. And so there's actually time there. And yes, you can build a lot of other parts of the business, the website, the branding, the go-to-market strategy. But what I often find as well is that I think folks spend a little too much time on strategy. Like they try to get everything super duper right in the beginning and that they actually spend a ton of time resources and like literally money on high-powered agencies to do x y and z things what that does is it really pigeonholes you to a v1 of whatever your product is before you even have the opportunity to test that out with your consumers. And so what I tend to advise folks to do is actually like, don't quit your job too early. 
you know, because I think what happens is when folks do that, they look to fill their time with these activities. And so, so what I actually say folks is like, you know, stay at your regular day job, try to get the product and the package right first, like at as minimal cost as you possibly can. And then when you have that, get out into the trade, get out into farmer's markets, get out into natural and specialty food markets, you know, pour samples, uh, you know, give it to strangers, try to sell it to strangers, get that initial feedback, and then go back and have that inform in new packaging innovation or product reformulations or things like that. And maybe after a couple of iterations of that, maybe then, you know, make the deeper investments. But those investments will be informed by actual consumer insights. To me, this is no different than building an initial minimum viable product, maybe putting a couple hundred dollars of Facebook or Instagram ads behind it, getting enough click funnel behavior, and then iterating on that. To me, this is no different than that. But I think a lot of folks who aspire to create food and beverage you know, concepts just don't go through this process. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from our tech brethren on how to, I think, effectively weave in consumer insights into the product development process. How long did you balance both your full-time job and Sanzo? And when was the right time for you to actually go full-time with entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, as I'm saying this on one side of my mouth, the other side of my mouth will also tell someone there's no right time to make a leap. Um, every entrepreneur that I've met, and I think it's important, I actually think it's very important uh, to go through their own like personal runway or their own personal burn exercise to yeah and it's i mean it's effectively mapping out your savings and how much your own personal burn can can take and i think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs will get to the process of saying okay as long as this thing can pay my rent and my basic utilities and basic expenses once that happens i'll make the leap and then you do that and you figure out very rare instances do you actually get to that point um you often get to a point where if it's going well, ooh, I feel like I have some traction, but the dollars just aren't there yet. Like the revenues, the revenue isn't there yet. Um, it's not really paying my rent, especially if I'm living in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. It's just, you know, if I try to optimize for that, then I'll never leave my job. Um, and that's and that's the experience that I found was like, it doesn't, like that day never really comes when you're able to like, you know, kind of easily do that. And I think the way that I've coached other entrepreneurs is like, that is the entrepreneurial journey. It's like, there is a leap and it can be very daunting, but it can also be very exciting. And so, you know, for folks who are in that process, it's just, I think, important to surround yourself with folks who are kind of going through that same journey with you or who maybe took that leap six to 12 months, you know, like before you're considering it. So my own journey was like really trying to make, milk those savings for as long as I could. I eventually had to take that leap and then just basically say, yeah, for the next six to 12 months, this thing's either going to work and I'm going to put my money into it. And if it does work, I'll then be able to raise capital because I'll be able to show success here or I won't and I'm going to have to go out and get a job. And that's just it. And for me, you know, there's a whole psychological thing there too, where yes, it is quite a bit of risk financially, but my own personal calculation was I'm already so pot committed. I'm already so invested in this idea, in this brand, in this mission that I would wake up at the age of 70 if I ever got, you know, if I, God willing, I get to that age, but I would wake up at that point and regret not making this leap. And for me, that was enough to say, 
yeah, it's worth it. And if it doesn't work out, I'll figure out how to build back up my life savings. Very practical advice and excited to dig into the logistics and launch aspect of Sanzo. I'm chatting with Sandra Rocco, founder of Sanzo. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So I think when we think about beverages, they are heavy and therefore it is very costly to ship. So how did you take on the logistic aspect of the business, especially because you launched direct-to-consumer? Yeah. I mean, there was a world even before COVID where there was such an interest in discovery of food and beverage online that there was quite a bit of like a tailwind where even if the unit, even if the contribution margins weren't too weren't the greatest, you know, you might be able to build up solid enough repeat purchase behavior and a customer lifetime value curve. And you you might have a shot at making those economics work. Um, And obviously even the way that I'm saying it is very heavily caveated because there's a very, very tight window there where you could even just get out of the gate. But the first things first, even within that is, you know, you really have to make your contribution margins work from day one. And that's really tough in these days, especially in beverage. I mean, even now when you go to our website, a 12 pack of Sanzo is $29.99, which is not the cheapest out there. I will be the first to admit that. Um, But you do need to cover your shipping and fulfillment costs. And for folks who are saying to themselves, well, you know, I'll go underwater on the first shipment and you know it'll pay off in repeat purchase behavior potentially you're running a subscribe and save program with you know one of the bigger providers out there i would say you're very much playing with fire i think one of the biggest lessons that i learned was hey if i'm going to run a contribution margin positive brand from day 1 the brand had better be worth a consumer saying to themselves i am going to pay a premium above what I'll get at a grocery store because I believe in this brand for whatever reason that is. And, you know, we leaned in heavily into the community, the unique flavors, and that really became our ability to sell a product at a premium in the early days. Because you really couldn't just go to a Whole Foods or a local grocery store and get a product like this. And so if you're delivering a unique value proposition, then yeah, you know, having something that is sold online, powered by Shopify, you know, that has a very easy conversion funnel, that can really work. But for a lot of brands that are really relying on, let's say, price or that are just selling a very commodity product, it's just really not going to work you know, direct to consumer. And I'll be the first to say that. But what that did for us was it allowed people to really trial the product. Um, and then especially during COVID, you know, when we saw, you know, shelter in place, you know, really affect a couple of things. One, you saw e-commerce as a percentage of total groceries shoot up. Practically what that meant was, hey, folks either didn't feel as comfortable going to grocery stores because you know, in the earliest days, folks just didn't know what was happening, you know, would I be safe walking into a grocery store? So folks really got into the world of online shopping. And even as the world is normalized, a lot of the gains in 
e-com as a percentage of shopping or really tracking. But what you also saw during COVID was because the restaurants were closed, um, you know, folks were looking still for unique products and flavors and unique experiences to occupy their time at a time when it was very, I think, like dehumanizing experience, right? Like just being cooped up in your home or your apartment, the ability to discover new products through food and beverage, like offered a sense of humanity in many ways. And so, you know, that was a great way for us to generate trial and get folks to try the brand. And fast forward to now, we were able to build in some really rapid fans who are now willing to go buy us in grocery stores and maybe several have kept their subscription to their, their drinksandzo.com account, you know, alive and well. So I'll say that there's a lot of great behaviors that D2C can help enable. I think I'd also be disingenuous if I didn't say that we also benefited from launching during COVID where we were, where we were able to build up, you know, some pretty impactful behaviors. And speaking to the fact that you launched a few months before COVID and during lockdowns, how did you build out your marketing strategies in the digital space to capture new customers? There are two things there. One of which was, you know, our community, we kind of self-selected early on to be folks that were either inside of the AAPI community or folks that we just had, you know, a higher degree of confidence would already have a certain level of familiarity or resonance with the brand. And so when you have that kind of focus that I think that allowed us to be very intentional about our influencer seating programs. Um, you know, it allowed us to choose early on whom we wanted to work with and really invest in those influencers and in the community. And so word of mouth was huge for our early days. And then again, this is kind of more practically to the world of COVID that we lived in during mid to end of 2020, because a lot of brands and even a lot of verticals like hospitality and travel and leisure, because those brands were sidelined, um, it really lowered the clearing price of Facebook and Instagram ads. And so that allowed us to get a pretty you know, inexpensive customer acquisition costs, um, things like that. And so you know, just leaning into both of those strategies, both on the organic and the paid side, it was actually possible for at least a short period of time to kind of meaningfully scale Mm-hmm. And speaking to the scaling, you also have many retail partnerships with Whole Foods, Sprout, Safeway, Target, Pan Express. What is some advice you want to share for those who are looking to gain retail partnerships and nurture those relationships? And the first thing that I would say to anybody who is looking to start a food and beverage company is to start small. And that typically means starting regional and specifically in your home region. Uh, what folks will learn when they get into the food and beverage industry is that it is incredibly fragmented and in many ways inefficient for folks who are used to operating in a tech-enabled world where if you're running a regular e-commerce website, you know, your tech stack is pretty well defined into, you know, you're going to run your shop on top of Shopify, your email service providers or your SMS providers are going to be in a certain funnel, your even your banking providers are going to be in a certain funnel, and everything's going to run quite smoothly, and everything's going to talk to each other quite well. I think one of the more humbling, but I actually think gratifying experiences of working in food and beverage is that 
it quickly gets you out of that space. The world, and especially the American food system and grocery system, is a lot messier than folks give it credit for. And it's almost like a modern-day miracle that, like, our grocery stores offer the level of selection, curation, and the American supermarket experience is a modern-day phenomenon for how disparate the underlying systems are. And there are a lot of people who try to fight it, and I think that that can be valuable if you're actually trying to reimagine the system, but if you're creating a brand in the space, you learn very quickly, and I think it should humble you, that you have to learn how to work within that system. And for folks who try to take it all on too quickly, my experience is that almost all, if not literally all, fail unless, again, you have an obscene amount of money or you are a celebrity. I mean, and there are examples of that too, whether it's, you know, more recently in the beverage industry, Prime with Logan Paul and KSI or, you know, Chamberlain Coffee. There are examples of that going really well, but for folks who don't have that coming out of the gate, you will very more than likely fail because the system itself can really swallow you up. So start small, start local. And my biggest thing is, as much as we're talking about building digital communities, food and beverage communities are built IRL. So get out there to your local grocery stores, sample, have people try the products. It can be daunting for folks, especially for folks who may be less extroverted or less used to talking to people one-on-one, but the power of one-to-one interactions, especially post-COVID, um, I don't think can be understated. People really get a ton of value when they taste the product and meet the maker. And one of the realities of operating a beverage company you touched on is the heavy investment and capital that's needed in order to scale. You've mentioned early days of starting Sanzo. You heard a lot of no's. So tell us a little bit about that experience where you did face a lot of rejection in the beginning and then you proved the business and then you were able to do a successful Series A. It's moving in the right direction. And so I want to make sure I'm clear about that. But overwhelmingly, the world of institutional capital and even seed stage investors, both institutional and individual, is overwhelmingly homogenous and specifically white and male. And look, like there are power structures that have been set for decades that have made that true. And to their credit, I think the world is really, really trying to push forward, but change doesn't happen overnight. And so that dynamic for sure to me in my in my experience is still there. And so when you're pitching something like this, overwhelmingly my experience doesn't match their experience. And the overwhelming feedback that I got in the earliest days was, hey, this is super niche. This is really just for the Asian American audience, which is it's alive and well and fast growing is still not enough of a market to deliver venture scale returns. And what I feel very grateful for is that our community, and that's not just Asian Americans, our community is actually about 30 to 35% Asian American and the rest of it not, um, has actually shown that no, Asian flavors, Asian culture, Asian faces are American culture. It is ubiquitous. Um, And that's not you know, it wasn't started by us. It was started by the influence of films like Crazy Rich Asians, like K-pop, like Parasite. Most recently, you had Everything Everywhere All at Once win seven Academy Awards, including three of like the top 
categories um, in the space, it's showing that like we are now really in the crosshairs of broader American, you know, like culture. And so it comes down to like, you know, are folks buying the product, you know, that's showing you know, that this thing is really crossing over. And I was really being able to go back to investors after a lot of no's, you know, with that, that we then got folks to really hop on board. Also, while I was getting all those rejections, I was also starting to get introduced to, you know, power brokers in the Asian American community who stepped up and really said, no, like, it's important that we invest behind these brands and show um, that this is the future. And so I'm very grateful to those investors as well for writing checks early on and kind of helping us get out of the gate. And it's a testament to different parts of Asian culture being intertwined into the current zeitgeist. I think one thing that's very interesting to the listeners maybe is the fact that Sanzo has recently gone through a branding exercise. Can you talk to, I guess, like some of the challenges and the reasons for why you wanted to go through this branding exercise? Yeah. When I started the brand, I didn't really have the money or wasn't really in a position to invest six figures into a branding agency that could do the full you know suite of of activities packaging a full brand book and you know very fortunately there was then small now they've really blown up you know creative agency here in New York City owned and managed by Korean American woman who had creative directed and I had worked with at my last company and who was just you know amazing in taking us on for a very small like nominal a bit amount of money to do our packaging but beside that like that was really the scope of the work and so three and a half years later we now have had so many more conversations you know with our community we now fortunately have a bigger team who knows this industry frankly better than i do and has been guiding a lot of my own learnings and how to navigate this crazy world of grocery and we need it. What we're doing right now is codifying all the lessons that we have learned over the last three and a half years and putting that into a brand book. What that's resulting in is some packaging updates. So, you know, starting in March, April, May, some of those updates will already start to roll out. And then even how we talk about the brand, it's just kind of being a bit more intentional in how we speak to our community. In addition to the new branding and packaging, you also launched um, a new flavor, Pomelo, which I love because you also included the sliced version of the fruit on the package, which is also, you know, a lot of personal experiences from Asian kids growing up where their parents cut up their fruits for them. How do you go about approaching developing these new flavors and picking new fruits to highlight? Yeah, I mean, you alluded to it. The new cut fruit design is one of the main branding evolutions that we took away from hundreds of customer interviews and conversations with our retailer and distributor partners. And how we're choosing our flavors really mimics now what we're seeing from a couple different parties. So one of which is, and it'll always, it'll always start with our community. Like, what flavors does our community want to see? Pomelo ended up being our number one when we sampled folks last summer. And then matching that up with what we see in the rest of our vertical, and specifically that's the world of flavored sparkling water. Um, you know, I talked earlier in the conversation about how you know, there's access to all of this syndicated data from 
point of sale when folks go to Kroger, Albertsons, and Whole Foods, you know, what are they buying? Grapefruit is in certain regions and certain retailers, the most popular sparkling water flavor that's out there. And we hadn't had it yet. And so um, here's a great opportunity for us to, you know, inject ourselves into that conversation. And so we're really excited for that to roll out. Amazing. Well, to wrap up the show, are there any flavors that are not created yet, but you really want to see happen? Or if you're taking flavor suggestions, I've definitely got a few fruits that I would love to see in a Sanzo. So I'll say we have several flavors in R&D already, none that I can talk about publicly, but I uh, am happy to take suggestions. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, I am definitely vying for some mangosteen flavored. Ooh, Sansa. okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll bring that back to the team. Yeah. Okay. We, we played around with it actually last summer, eventually decided on pomelo, but it's definitely on the list. Oh my goodness. Okay. Great to hear. Well, thank you so much for being here, Sandro. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. That's Sandra Rocco, founder and CEO of Sanzo. And thank you so much for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Go Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Shwang Esther Shan. And we will see you next time.